You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. I don't know about you guys, but I am someone that has a really hard time waiting for things. Can anybody relate to that? Just a nod of the head. Yep. Those of you who are like, no, I'm really super patient. No, you're not, right? Um, whether it's the sort of everyday little things like waiting in the line at Market Basket, which this is the worst part of the year to go to Market Basket. I don't think there's ever a great part, but this is the worst. Or if it's uh, waiting in, in traffic, which I know many of you do daily, you know, on, on commutes, things like that. Or, and I'm really bad at this, waiting for that Amazon package to arrive. Or for me, I'll just be honest, it's Westminster Seminary Bookstore. You know, I'm just constantly refreshing. Where is it? Where is it? Like, what do we do before uh, Amazon and, and delivery and tracking numbers? It's, we're just an impatient people. And we, we experience it every day in those, those little things, but... Those are sort of comical, but think about the, not just the small inconveniences, but the more weighty and difficult periods of waiting that we experience as well. Waiting for the answer to that prayer that you've been praying for a really, really long time. Or, or waiting to, to see or hear the outcome of that cancer treatment that a loved one is, is going through. Waiting, waiting for a job that you know, it's just the desire of your heart, would, would provide meaningful work for you. We can go on and on. Waiting for a spouse, waiting for a child, waiting for a friend to, to come to faith in Christ. Or maybe just waiting for a sense of the nearness of God that you once had. You once felt close to Him, but you've felt distant. The reality is, whether it's big or small, trivial every day, or deep and painful, waiting is, is tough for, for each of us. And this morning, we're beginning our annual Advent series, and the word Advent means coming or arrival. And it's a season when the church, the Christian church around the world, we look with anticipation primarily upon the first Advent, the first coming of Christ, but also we anticipate the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And so this morning we're focusing on what does it mean to look forward to that coming Savior King Jesus. And we've titled our, our series, our four-week series in December, The King of Kings. So each week we're considering what does it mean that Jesus is our promised king, that's today. Uh, what does it mean that he's our king is, who's to be worshipped, who's to be beheld, and who is, is going to reign forever. That's our focus uh, this year on our Advent series, on the kingship, the kingliness of Jesus. And this morning, again, we're looking back just before the arrival of this king, this coming king, in Luke chapter 1. And when we come to this passage, we're coming to the end of a very long period of waiting. Um, ever since sin entered the world, there has been a promise that a deliverer would come, a king would come, to rescue us from our sin. And now as we come to Luke chapter 1, Thousands of years after that initial promise and hundreds of more reminders all throughout the Old Testament, Gabriel, this angel, appears to Mary and he essentially says, the time has come. 
The king is coming. Now, as we think of this in sort of the storyline of the Bible, all of this waiting tells us something extremely important about King Jesus, doesn't it? Because we know that we wait for things that we value. The more valuable something is to us, the more important that thing is, the longer we're willing to wait for it. So think about it this way. The emphasis that the scriptures puts on waiting, how long God's people are waiting for this coming king shows us just how valuable this king is. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that all of scripture thus far has pointed to this moment in Luke chapter 1 and 2. All of Scripture has pointed to the the advent, the coming of this king. And so, who is this coming king? That's, That's the question we're asking in this text this morning. It's the question that uh, Gabriel answers. And so when we, see, when we look at the words of Gabriel here to Mary, we, we see that this king is the promised divine savior king. And then when we look at the, the words of Mary in response to this and her faith and obedience, we see that this king, this coming king, who is worthy of our, our trust and obedience. And so we're going to walk through this text in three parts this morning. If you're taking notes, um, here's what they are. Number one, we're going to see the promise of the king. And this is where we'll see that he is the the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies, one in particular to David in 2 Samuel 7. So the promise of the king. Number two, we're going to see the person of the king. This is where we see in Gabriel's description to Mary that this coming king is the great divine savior king who will reign forever. And then third and finally, we'll see the possibility of the king. How is it possible that this king would come to us? And we see that in the virgin conception that Gabriel explains to Mary. So we have the promise of the king, the person of the king, and the possibility of the king. So let's jump in. Number one, the promise of the king. Look look again with me at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her... And said, greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. Now those first two verses, 26 and 27, they're introducing the the setting and the characters of of this story. And we read that uh, this is in the sixth month, which we're jumping into a passage. You know, we're taking a break from Exodus, jumping into different passages. So we have to know that right before this, we, we read of Elizabeth in Zechariah. Elizabeth's Mary's relative, and the sixth month here is of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John, later called John the Baptist, a relative of Jesus. And this angel named Gabriel appears. Now, we don't always get names from angels um, in the scripture, but here we're told that it is the angel Gabriel. And this, this triggers in our minds, this shows us this is an important announcement because Gabriel brought really important prophecies to God's people. For example, in the book of Daniel, he brought the prophecy uh, to, to Daniel and he's about to bring an extremely important message to Mary. So it's like God sent his top guy for this one, right? Now, we know very little about Mary's background, her relatives again. We read right before this, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah are righteous people. Zechariah was a priest. 
Um, Mary herself shows here in this passage, and if you read through uh, the rest and her song in response to this, that she absolutely loves and adores God. She knows her Bible really well. And what we, we, we know is that God was looking for a faithful servant for this mission, and he found one in Mary. She's favored by God because of God's grace, but also because she loved the Lord and walked in righteousness. And Luke also tells us that Mary is a virgin who is betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothal is uh, it's like engagement, but more serious and a little more legally binding. And I th- what, what Luke is doing here is he's telling us not just to know like, hey, here's, you know, here's her fiance, but he describes Joseph as from the lineage of David. And Luke is being very intentional here by mentioning that Joseph is from the, the line of David. Because what he's doing is he's tying in what's about to happen to the covenant promise of the Old Testament that the divine Savior King would come from the line of David. So even in just what we might say, these are just descriptions of the setting and characters, Luke is being very intentional. He is saying, pay attention. Because you're about to hear of a promise that has been promised to God's people for thousands of years. And so when we see that David, our minds are to go back. Mary's mind would have gone back. Good Israelites who had heard this would have certainly known that this points us back to a promise. So we have to go back as well. And the question is, okay, well, how far back do we need to go to understand this promise? Well, the promise of, we must know this, the promise of this divine Savior King has been in the mind and heart of God from eternity past. This is God's plan A of redemption to send Jesus as the Savior King. But... The first time we read of it in the scriptures is in Genesis chapter 3. That's very early in the Bible, right? You get two chapters of just wonderful beauty and bliss, and then we screw everything up, right? Genesis chapter 3, the serpent deceives Adam and Eve, and they disobey God, and what happens? Sin enters the world. God speaks to Adam and Eve, but God also gives a curse to the serpent, to Satan, to the enemy. And he says this in Genesis 3.15, God to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he, this offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Meaning you're going to harm him. It hurts when you injure your heel. But he's going to deal a decisive death blow to you, Satan. Now notice what what God is doing. He's promising a deliverer. One is going to come from the line of Eve, from the seed of the woman. If you've been with us through Genesis, we've traced this. We've traced it through Exodus as well. Any Old Testament passage we've studied, we've seen that God is promising this deliverer. And this is, in Genesis 3.15, this is the first glimpse of the gospel that we get in the scriptures. So if you go, you know what, I want to understand the gospel, I need to go to the New Testament. No, 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 no. You go all the way back to the beginning. And how gracious is our God, right? Right when sin enters the world, right when we mess everything up, here comes the Lord and promises deliverance, promises grace, promises mercy. 
Now, as we continue on through uh, the, the stories of the Old Testament, we see this promise is reiterated time and time again. Through people like Abraham. God chooses Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and he's later renamed Israel. And this nation grows, and Jacob has a bunch of sons, and one of those sons is Judah, and Judah's line continues on until we get to the second king of Israel, who was the greatest earthly king Israel has ever known, the warrior shepherd king, David. Joseph says, Joseph, this Joseph, or Luke says, Gabriel says, Joseph is of the line of David. Luke's connecting our minds back to this. Now, if you have your Bibles, I know we always put uh, the, the words on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, because this is a passage you should know about, right? At the end of David's life, through Nathan the prophet, God gives him a promise. And when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see this promise from God through the prophet Nathan. Verses 12 and 13 says this. This is one of those ones you want to mark in your Bible and then maybe write Luke chapter 1 next to it. He says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? Now, God's promising David three things in 2 Samuel 12, or 7, 12 through 13. What is he promising him? He promises him a son. Then he promises him that God will establish this son and then he promises him that this son will reign forever. Then, a thousand years later, we come to Luke chapter 1, verse 31. What does Gabriel say? Notice that Gabriel pr promises all three things. Verse 31 says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him or establish the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. A son established by God, an eternal forever kingdom. All three things that God promises in 2 Samuel 7 to David, Gabriel says, this Savior King who's coming, he's the fulfillment of that promise. Now, why is this important to us? Well, friends, if Genesis 3, 2 Samuel 7, all the hundreds of other promises that we can see on almost every page of Scripture, they tell us that God is a promise maker. He is a God who makes promises. But Luke 1 tells us that God is a promise keeper, right? Gabriel is saying, listen, he didn't just make this promise that you've been waiting for for years and years and generations. He is a God who keeps his promises. That is such an important application for us as we consider Advent, isn't it? It is hard 
to believe the promises of God in our waiting, isn't it? It's, it's really hard. The longer we wait, the more we're tempted to think, man, can God come through? Will he come through? Friend, let Advent, let this message be a reminder to you that God doesn't just make his promises. He always keeps his promises in his timing as he sees fit. Now, if, if you are in a season of, of waiting, maybe you're struggling to believe the promises of God, what do you do? I think that's an important application question of this concept of this fulfilled promise in Luke chapter 1. What do you do? Let me suggest two exhortations to you. Try to get really practical. So if you're in a season of waiting and you're struggling to believe the promises, the word of God, let me first exhort you to this. First, make sure you're clinging to God's promises and not your preferences. Okay? It's easy for us to to confuse the two sometimes, right? Sometimes we doubt God in our waiting because we think a desire or preference that we have is something God has promised when in fact he hasn't promised it to us. He doesn't promise us a life of ease. He doesn't promise us health. He doesn't promise us prosperity. He doesn't promise us spouses or children or conflict-free life or any of those things. Those are things that we may desire and prefer, and that's fine, but they are not promises. God may decide, and oftentimes in his grace and mercy, he decides to to bestow those things upon us, but we have to make sure that we don't confuse what we prefer and desire with what he actually promises in his word. When we do that, what happens? We don't get what we desire, or we don't get it on our timeline, so we wrongly assert that God must not be a promise-keeping God, which is not true. Can you you imagine if God gave Israel all of their preferences, right? It'd be a very short book. We're in Exodus, right? We've seen, they leave, and almost immediately they're like, we want to go back. We want to go back to slavery, They want to worship pagan idols. They want to turn from the Lord. Can you imagine if God gave them or us all of our preferences? We would be destroyed. You see, as a young child grows and matures, they begin to understand that their father is withholding things, but it's actually for their good. He knows best. When, when kids are young, they ask questions like, I, why can't I have candy for dinner? Why can't I spend all of the money grandma gave me on this toy that will break in three hours? Right? Why do I have to wait? If you've ever been on an uh, extended car ride with a child, you understand this. Are we there yet? How long is it going to be? Right? Give me what I want. But as children grow and mature in understanding, they realize my father loves me. He knows what's best for me. He knows more than I do for myself. And there are times when he's going to withhold things from me or he's going to wait because he knows what's best. Well, friends, God is the same with us. And one way to cling to that is to evaluate our own expectations of God and make sure we're clinging to what his word actually promises to us. And that we're holding our preferences and desires with an open hand. Second, another practical 
way. If you're struggling with believing the promises of God, feel like you're waiting on the Lord, reflect often on the promises of God. Reflect often on the promises of God. Paul says to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, every promise of God finds its yes and amen in Jesus. That means if you want to know how every promise in the scriptures is fulfilled, you look to Jesus. So let me just give you a few. You can stake your life on these promises in the scripture that you you and I should reflect on in our waiting. First, God promises to forgive you of your sins. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God promises to never, ever leave you or forsake you. No matter what you've done or no matter what's been done to you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God also promises to hear your prayers. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. God also promises to meet all of your needs. Not all of your wants, but all of your needs. Matthew 6, 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God promises to work all things for your good. Even your waiting and your suffering and your struggles. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And friends, notice if we fast forward a bit and see how Mary responds to this really troubling, life-changing news from Gabriel, we notice that she too clings to the promises of God. I encourage you to, to read maybe later today or sometime this week, verses 46 through 56, her song of, of praise It's full of rich Old Testament imagery showing she knows her Bible well. She knew the promises of God and she clung to those things. She rejoiced in them in her waiting. She had to wait as well. She had to wait to know how Joseph would respond to this, how her family would respond. She had to wait for Christ to be born and what that would mean for her life. She had to wait knowing that this one would die for the sins of the people. Yet she clung to the promises of God in her waiting promise of the coming king shows us that God keeps all of his promises to us. Exhorts us to cling to him. So that's number one. Number two, we also see the person of the king. Now here we're going to zoom in even more on verses 31 through 33 because we're told what kind of king this will, will be. So first we see this is, this is the one who's been prophesied for. Now what kind of king will this be? 31, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and call his name Jesus and he shall be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now there's a lot here. just want to point out some characteristics. First, we see that this king will bring salvation. This king is going to bring salvation. And we're told this because we're given the name of this child. Verse 31, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus or Yeshua means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. We read in Matthew's account, Matthew 1, 21, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Now, this is how you know this is going to be a different king. Because no Israelite king could save God's people from their sins. A king like David was a great military leader. He could save the people from enemies if his army was strong enough. He was a warrior after all. A a good human king could provide some sense of peace and stability and good leadership for the people. But no earthly king, no no person anywhere, anytime, anyplace could save the sin, people from their sins. Only Yeshua saves can do that. Only Jesus can do that. And that's the title, that's the name that he's given. Friends, this may seem like a, a simple question for, for us, especially if we you know, come to church regularly, read our Bibles, but do you know this Jesus first and foremost as your Savior? Do, do, you, do you see him as the one who has come to save you from your sins. You and I have a lot of problems. Our world has a lot of problems. Oftentimes, our problems can be solved by our own ingenuity, help from others. But no one can save us from our sins except for God alone. In the first description that Gabriel gives of this coming king is that he is a savior. And and what a unique king, right? When we think kings, we think on the throne, in a palace, servants bowing down all around him. But how did Christ come at his first advent? He appeared to a no-name teenage girl in a no-name town of Nazareth. He's born in in a stable. His announcement is to lowly shepherds. Why? Because he has come to lay down his life for us, to save us from our sins. He himself later says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. We're to reflect often on Jesus as our Savior King. This is what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Timothy. He's talking to young Timothy and he says this, Now, let me remind you, the Apostle Paul is probably, we'd say, he's one of the greatest Christians who has ever lived. But he says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Paul's not saying he's a worse sinner than you. What he's saying is anybody who knows their own heart would call themselves a greater sinner than anybody else around them. And Jesus has come as that Savior King. Now we're also told that this will be a great King. Look at verse 32. He will be great. Now that word great is uh, it's something that's lost its weightiness in our day. I think of like Tony the Tiger thought his frosted flakes were great, right? Right? We're told to be great right there. It's a big sign right there. We, say, we make plans and we go, yeah, that's great. I'll see you later. 
So this is sort of, this, this word can be lost on us. Some synonyms here would be extraordinary, magnificent, powerful. It's a way of saying there's no one like this king. And it's only one word in this text. It'd be easy to skip over. But think of how many of your struggles, my struggles, our anxieties, our discouragements could be put at ease if we learned to, to just meditate on the greatness of Jesus and how incredible he is. Imagine the most famous person that, that you value most in your life, whatever celebrity that is. Please don't shout it out, right? Maybe the person at the top of that Spotify wrapped list or whatever. Um, if you were to meet that person, some of you have done this before. You've met like a hero or a celebrity. And what happens? You freak out a little bit. You get a little weird. Your age decreases by like 15 to 20 years. And you're like, oh my goodness. Heart starts racing. You're just in awe of their presence. It's just a person. right? Jesus is 10 million times greater than that. We should be awed at his presence. Gabriel is saying, this great one is coming to you. We see his greatness all throughout the scriptures, throughout his own ministry. We see that his wisdom is greater than all other teachers. We see that his, his power is, is greater than all other powers. He has power over creation, power over the wind and waves, even over sickness and death and demons. When we read the, the scriptures, places like Hebrews tell us he's greater than all the prophets. He's greater than every priest. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than all the things we value as great material wealth, vacations, security, comforts, possessions, anything we have owned or will ever own. He's greater than any relationship we could have. He's greater than a spouse, greater than a friend, greater than a child. He's greater than any earthly pleasure or comfort than you and I can imagine, whether it's food, sex, entertainment, comfort. Friends, he's also greater than our struggles and our sufferings and our, our pain and our doubts. Friends, think often on the greatness of King Jesus. We should say like the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians 1, just in this long run-on sentence of praise, he speaks of the immeasurable greatness of Christ's power towards us who believe. There is no one greater. Now, how can he be this great? Well, because we read also here in verse 32 that the king is also divine. It says he will be called the son of the most high. Now, in the previous passage, John is called great as well, but he's not called the son of the most high. And this phrase most high is a title for, for God. And Mary would have been familiar with this, this language, as well as other Israelites, places like Psalm 47, 2, for the Lord, the most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. It's a title that says there's no one higher, no one more powerful than him. He is divine. Jesus also told us this part of his identity. He says in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He declared to his opponents in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are, are one. He's a divine king. So when Gabriel, what he announces here, and the New Testament confirms, is that Jesus is unquestionably God. It's unique in that way. 
And then he tells us, Gabriel goes on, that this king will reign forever. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now put all this together, friends. Do you know what this means for you and I this morning? This divine Savior King, who's greater than you and I could ever imagine, he's sitting on the throne right now as the sovereign ruler over all things. He is reigning now. And he will reign forever. And nothing will ever dethrone him or come close to dethroning him. Think about how that truth can radically transform your life. Think of that sin struggle that you wore as you came into the room this morning. That guilt that's weighing down on you because of it. Does it not give you hope that this king's name is Jesus? Yahweh saves. You can't save yourself from your sin. You can't deliver yourself from your sin. He is the Savior. Come to him with your sins. Or think of all the distractions of this world that keep us from loving and pursuing Jesus. What if we turned and considered the greatness and beauty of Jesus? If we just looked long at who Christ was, so much so that it so captivated our hearts that it just stripped away those desires for the foolish things of this world. We're supposed to look long at the divine Savior King. Or think of the burdens on your mind this morning, the anxiety, the discouragement. He is on the throne. He is in charge, not you. You don't know how that thing is going to turn out, but he does. And he'll work it for your good. Like Mary, we're, we're, we're troubled by lots of things, aren't we? Like Mary, we, we may wonder, okay, how are these things going to play out? Does it not give us hope and peace as it did for her to know that Jesus, the Most High, is on the throne, providentially working in every detail of our life for our good and his glory? This is our king. This is who the coming king is. Now we move from the promise of the king to the person of the king, and lastly to the possibility of the king. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary responds to this with a very obvious question. Uh, how is this going to work out since I am a virgin? So she knows how babies are made. She was paying attention in health class or that conversation with her parents. And so she's asking a biological question, though she's likely also thinking this is going to radically transform my life as well. So she's wondering how is this going to work? This is a faith-stretching conversation for Mary. And this should encourage us as well, right? Because Mary's wrestling with the angel wrestling with God and his word in her own faith struggles, and we're called to do the same. Anselm of Canterbury, we've quoted this often, says, faith is always seeking understanding. That's what Mary is doing here. She's humbly asking God through Gabriel, and God guides her along the way. 
And how encouraging to know that God does that with our weak and fable faith as well. And so Gabriel responds and tells her that this will be miraculous. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is not going to be a natural conception, but a supernatural one brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, J.C. Riles Wise, he tells us we need to lean into the mystery of this. We don't know exactly how this happened, but we need to take God as at his word. And we, this is not up for grabs for us as Christians to believe this. And note, note that this is not just any miracle, but it's a miracle that has not happened before or since. The virgin conception, or what has uh, historically been called, we just read it in the creed, the virgin birth. And this can be one of those major hang-ups for people who are wrestling with the, the questions and claims of Christianity. Maybe that's you, or I'm sure you likely have a friend who, if you were to talk to them about this, maybe you have, they would say, are you serious? Do you really believe this stuff? Like, I get the teaching about being kind to one another. You know, Jesus seemed like a nice guy, but do you really believe in a virgin conception? And the answer is yes. Not only do we believe it, but without it, we have no Christian faith and no salvation to stand on. This is very important for us. Now, it's also important to know that Christians aren't the only ones who have faith in the miraculous or the mysterious, right? Everybody, no matter what your view of the world or philosophy, everyone takes faith leaps to attempt to answer questions. Even if you believe, it's very common, if you're full, you know, secularist, even if you believe that nothing exists outside of matter and its movements, right? There's no God, there's no spiritual realm, there's no afterlife. Even if you believe that, you still have beliefs that require confidence or faith. One of my favorite uh, theologians or uh, apologist is a guy named Glenn Scrivener, and he says this. I find this so helpful about the virgin birth. He says, some have spoken of the universe spontaneously creating itself, the whole cosmos propped up by nothing, absolutely nothing. As miracles go, this would be unparalleled. Everything from nothing. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, but this would mean the virgin birth of the cosmos. In fact, it's the virgin birth of the cosmos, but without a virgin, without anything. Here would be the greatest conjuring trick ever pulled. Nothing up the sleeve, no sleeve, not even a magician, just pure magic. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, listen, choose your miracle. You want to believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos, or the virgin birth of Christ? Now, why then is this so essential for us? Why couldn't we just sort of leave this to the side and focus on all the good things we should do as Christians? There's a number of reasons. I just want to give you two things. First, the scriptures tell us that the coming king will be born of a virgin. So this is not some random thing that just happens in, in the beginning of the gospels. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So we believe the word of God. We take God at his word. And as we do, we see that this is something God promised us. It's not some random addition to the story to spice it up a little bit. But second, and maybe, maybe more important, Without the virgin conception, the coming king would not be able to bring us salvation. There would be no salvation for us. 
Scripture teaches us that Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, is fully God and fully man. Not 50-50, not divine but looks human, but fully divine and fully human. Scripture also tells us, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So as a human who grew in the womb like us and grew up like us and was able to, he was able to identify with us and live for us. Therefore, as a human, he is able to represent us to God, the humanity of Christ. This is why Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. When was the last time God miraculously brought forth a man in a way that wasn't humanly possible? It was an Adam. But Adam failed to obey. The last Adam, Jesus, will be able to reverse the curse of sin brought by disobedience. How? Because not only is he man, able to represent us, but he is also fully God. Colossians 2.9 For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And as one who is conceived of the Holy Spirit... While he shares our humanity, he doesn't share our sin nature. He's divine. Therefore, though tempted as we were, though he lived like us, he never sinned. And he succeeded where Adam and you and I have all failed. He lived the righteous life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die in our place. He rose from the dead, purchasing salvation for all who would believe. If he were merely a man, he would not be able to be the spotless sacrifice for our sins. He'd be in sin like we are. If he were merely divine and was not a man, he would not be able to identify with us and stand in our place because he would not share our humanity. As you see the wisdom of God in this, God gave us the perfect Savior that we need in the virgin conception. He uses his astonishing power to to bring about the God-man. You go, "That that sounds impossible. Yeah, it does, but nothing is impossible with God. The possibility of the coming king is through the virgin conception. Now, there's a lot here. I just want to try and bring it home and, and give some simple applications and ask this. How do we respond to this king? This promised king, this divine savior king. Two questions for you. First, here's the question. You should ask yourself, am I born again? We go, well, we haven't haven't even really talked about that. Well, while Mary's miracle in the virgin conception was unique, there is a radical miracle for all who believe the gospel today. It's called being born again. It's called new birth in Christ. When you trust in Christ, Jesus doesn't just come into your life and just sort of, you know, add to your schedule a little bit, right? He radically transforms you. He takes away the penalty of your sin. He empowers you to walk in the newness of life. You become a new creation. So the virgin conception, the virgin birth should also point us to the radical spiritual new birth that is found in Christ. Just as Jesus was conceived of the Spirit, so you are born again of the Holy Spirit. 
And that's a, that's a miracle. If you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not turned to believe in him, that is a miracle that God enacts that we can experience today. I think of this, this prayer from the, the old hymn, O little town of Bethlehem, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Be born again. That's the first question. Second, in what area of your life do you need to surrender and submit to King Jesus? Mary's our example here. She hears all this. She takes it all in. It is life-changing for her. But how does she respond? How does this passage end? Verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Friends, this Advent season, know this, the divine Savior King has come. The, the promise has been kept. God has accomplished the impossible in Jesus Christ. And so we are to see him and submit to him. Trust and obey him in our waiting, in our longing, in the highs and lows of, of life until he comes again. And we're to say with Mary, let it be according to your word. I'll leave you with one last quote from J.C. Ryle. He reflects on this and says, Let us seek in our daily practical Christianity to exercise the same blessed spirit of faith which we see here in the Virgin Mary. Let us be willing to go anywhere and do anything and be anything, whatever be the present and immediate inconvenience, so long as God's will is clear and the path of duty is plain.